Tonight, in Daniel 5, we read the story of the fall of Babylon. Babylon is, apart from Jerusalem, the most epic and talked about city in all of the Bible. Babylon is founded after the flood. Noah gets off of the ark and his descendants spread. Noah's grandson, by the name of Nimrod, and I'm not joking, went and founded Babylon. He founded Babylon right after founding Nineveh, so he's kind of 0 for 2 here as far as cities with the relationships with God people. God had promised the Israelites and promised through the world, through Noah, that he would never flood the earth again. What happened in the original Babylon, Babel as it was called, is people were drawn together out of a sort of antagonism towards God's word. They didn't believe that God would show mercy. They didn't believe that God would refrain from flooding the earth again. They knew their own sin. Babylon stands as a a testimony through time of self-awareness at least, (laughs) knowing their sin, knowing they fall short of sin. But instead of believing God for his mercy and believing God when he said he would never flood the earth again, they instead decided to build a tower. The idea being that you could, you know, the problem with the world before the flood is that they couldn't get high enough. It's kind of the way people in Babel were thinking, build a tower up to heaven. And God, of course, watches them build. And from this point forward, Babel stands, Babylon stands as almost a a physical monument, a testimony to human thinking that you can outmaneuver God. Now in the Bible, the concept of Babylon, that's what it, it represents, false worship and human ingenuity in contrast to divine sovereignty. And that is not to say that, that everybody who lived in Babylon was sinful any more than obviously to say everybody who lived in Jerusalem is righteous, right? If Jerusalem stands for the, the city of peace and where God will put his name, which, which it does, clearly in the Bible, everybody who lives in Jerusalem is not peaceful, nor is God's seal of approval on them. And so there's this dichotomy, there's a split in the Old Testament between the concept of Babylon as, as false worship and human ingenuity and this concept of Jerusalem as the city of peace where God's name will be, and yet the people who live in those cities often don't match each other. And you see this right in the middle of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he gets converted, whereas the Israelite king, who was taken by the Babylonians into captivity, he, as far as we know, dies as an apostate. And so there is this profound irony with Babylon that there are those in Babylon who know more about Yahweh than those in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, Babylon stands throughout the Bible as a picture of false religion. The original Tower of Babel was designed to escape God and intimidate others, to avoid judgment by man's effort, to fulfill what the serpent offered Eve in the garden, to be like God. That's what Babylon represented. In Genesis 11, it was an actual city with an empire and a a government and taxes and all that. It had religion, it had commerce, and it becomes the foundation. When God strikes the Tower of Babel and scatters people around the world, the foundation for all false religions are traced back to Babel. Every false religion in the world has its roots going back to Babel. Every other false religion sees its origins in the Tower of Babel. And God crushed it and scattered it. He sent that poison all around the globe. And 
He does this, of course, so that he can isolate Israel and so the gospel and the Messiah can grow up protected by scattering the false religions around the world. There was supposed to be a difference that the Savior would come to Abraham and his descendants. And so they had to be isolated. Babel grows and prospers around the world. The Babylonians, when the Babylonian Empire came, they kept the name of the tower. They kept the name of the city. They named their empire, the Babylonian Empire, after the city there, a capital city, Babylon, which was, of course, where the Tower of Babel was. They kept their identity. They kept their, their paganism, this false worship. You see this with Nebuchadnezzar building the statue that ascends to heaven you know, six stories tall. To give you a point of contrast here, our cross on our, our ceiling, which you can't see from here. You can see the support beams, but if you're outside, you can see the cross, it's six stories tall. That's what you're dealing with here with Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Commanding the people bow down and worship it. Of course, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a vision of the different empires of the world coming and going from the head of gold down to the feet. And of course, they were all going to be crushed by the rock of ages who would, who would obliterate them as Christ's kingdom is the one that is established. Nebuchadnezzar initially did not believe that, instead built his own statue and compelled people to worship it. That's the most brazen exchange. And nothing represents Babel or Babylon more than that exchange right there. Here's the rock of ages, the God of the world who offers salvation and forgiveness, put him aside and replace him with a man-made idol, a statue thinking that worshiping that statue can bring you closer to God. That's the most brazen of exchanges. You'll see Babylon throughout the scripture. The Bible ends in Babylon. Revelation 18, the Antichrist has set up his kingdom. He reconstitutes Babylon and there's an element of that that's Rome. The concept of Rome, Peter calls Rome Babel or Babylon because of all the false worship that happens through the Roman religion. But here in the middle of the Bible, Daniel 5, you see the, the fall of Babylon. Again, it'll be reconstituted in the book of Revelation. That's Revelation 18. But for now, here becomes the fall of Babylon. It starts in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, what Daniel's readers would know, and you perhaps learned in world history, but maybe forgot, <laughs> So I'll remind you, Belshazzar is new on the throne. There's been other kings since Nebuchadnezzar. We last saw Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar was the, the powerful king in Babylon. Babylon as a, as a city had existed for centuries, you know, thousand plus years, really as a prosperous, significant city with its own king and rulers. But this, this reign here, this kingdom Babylon here was the most powerful one they'd ever had, the one that conquered the Assyrians. Nebuchadnezzar was their strongest king they'd ever had. He's the one that went deranged and grazed in the, the field for seven years where the Lord humbled him. Now he's gone. He's died. His son-in-law named Evil Murdoch, again, not making these names up, <laughs> You have Nimrod founding Babylon and now evil Murdoch reigning over it. I don't know where he got that name. Maybe not when he was born. I don't know. That would be a mom who is angry. What should we call him? Evil. Evil Murdoch. He had reigned for a while. He was murdered, taken out of the equation. Then another king reigned. And then, then he left. Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law was on the throne. And now Belshazzar. I don't really understand how Belshazzar is related to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if it was by marriage or one of his many wives. It's, history is not very clear on that. But the king who was in charge 
was a relative of Nebuchadnezzar, and he abdicates the throne. He takes an army out to go fight the Persians. The Persians were storming against Babylon. They were trying to take down the Babylonian Empire. Babylonian Empire had fought off many such invasions before. I mean, it was the largest empire in the world. They had conquered Israel. The Babylonian Empire grew by conquering other smaller empires. The way the Persian Empire grew was not in the same way. The Persian Empire did not grow by conquering little pieces of the pie here and there. The Persian Empire grew by going right after Babylon. Bring it down. And that's what's happening here. The king who is on the throne, the leader of Babylon, took the army to go out and scatter the Persians. That was his goal. So he had left. Babylon is left here without the army. The army left maybe three or four days before this exchange that we read about in Daniel chapter 5. The army has gone to fight the Persians and get them away. In, the, in Babylon, you could see the Persians moving around. You could, didn't know which side they were going to attack. Babylon was a massive city with massive walls, a, a river that fed the cities, the Euphrates River. It had a water supply. It's not the kind of city you could make a siege on. A smaller city, you would just surround it, keep out the food, and starve the people out. That's how Israel fell, if you remember that. Babylon was too big for that. It had its own commerce. It could grow its own food. It had massive walls. You couldn't do a siege of Babylon. Instead, you would have to, to breach it or, or get into it somehow. And, and they thought they were invincible. And that's why they sent their army out. You don't need an army if people can't get inside your city. So they sent their army out to the Persians. They didn't know how many Persians there were. Now, what we know from, from secular history is that the Persian army caught the Babylonian army. The Babylonian army went out over the hills, didn't realize that they were outnumbered. They mostly surrendered and the Persians had won the battle. That's all happening when chapter five, verse one is written. Belshazzar, who's the second in command, assumes the title of king. Historians call him king because the, the real king was out with the army. He's doing a feast. He doesn't know that the real king has already surrendered. He, did, he doesn't know at this point his army has already lost. He knows the Persians are out there. He doesn't know how close. And he doesn't know that it's already over. So what does he do? He throws a party. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and it just means someone before him on the throne. I don't think it was his actual father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem he commanded they be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone. Nothing is more Babylonian than this exchange right here. <laughs> this festival is done for arrogant boasting Sheer pride on display. I mean, just imagine the arrogance that's at play here. This, Babylon is a place where the emperors are worshipped as gods. The emperors are perceived as if they were gods. So he feels like he's invincible. And if you are one god kind of in a spitting contest with another god, that's the way they, they viewed this, what better way to demonstrate your superiority here than take that other god's vessels and drink wine out of them in your own debauched party? Watch the highlight of the uh, Patriots game last week. I don't know if it's, I don't even remember if they won or not. Did they win? Who knows? Anyway, what I do remember about the game is that their owner was wearing Super Bowl rings as cufflinks. 
How insane is that? He has Super Bowl rings are so extravagant, are so, you know, ubiquitous for him. He's got them laying around. He's wearing them as cufflinks. That is insane. Notice what Belshazzar is doing here. He brings out the golds that were conquered from the Jewish temple, from Yahweh's temple, and he does a party by drinking wine out of Yahweh's gold while commanding everybody, look at the end of verse four, to worship the gods of gold. That lets you know what he thinks about Yahweh. By the way, the vessels from Yahweh's temple were not glasses designed for drinking wine out of. They're like candle snuffers. They're shovels. They're gold. There's a golden shovel and then a, connection, a collection of candle snuffers is, the, is the, you know, the thing you put over the flame and the collection of basins that you would mix the, the fat of the animals in with fire, smear it around, burn the fat off and have ash. And then the, the incense thing you could swirl around. Those are the vessels from the temple. He's filling them with wine. And what do you, what do you put in, how do you put wine in an incense burner? Does it spray out everywhere? Probably. And a shovel, he's drinking wine out of a golden shovel from the temple. I mean, do you see his boasting here towards God? How strong is Yahweh? I don't know. Let me take his, his golden shovel from his temple and drink wine out of that. Now remember that God had already declared to Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would fall and it would be over. Belshazzar either doesn't know that story. Belshazzar didn't read Daniel 4, obviously. Or maybe it's gotten to him. He doesn't care. He doesn't know that his army is already lost. He doesn't know that he's the one in charge because the one above him has already been captured. He doesn't know any of this. He's just drinking gold in this drunken party. The date of this, by the way, if you're into history, October 16th, 539. They didn't use our you know, Julian calendar, of course, but if you take their, the calendar that they did use, extrapolate it to ours, this event happens October 16th, 539 BC. Belshazzar is parting with the gold. Verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. This, this whole thing has been uh, uncovered by archaeologists. The room is big enough for lots of people to be in it. The throne is the throne room. The throne's on one side. It would have been lit across him. The idea here is that the king would be the only one facing the crowd as he's drinking from all these golden things. He's designing to keep the spirits up of everybody. You know, we're going to win. Of course we're going to win. We're the strongest gods in the world. There's no gods like our gods kind of, you know, they sing that song to themselves. They're drinking gold from Yahweh's, wine from Yahweh's temple. And at the back wall, which only Belshazzar could see, a hand appears, almost as if it's reached through the door. And it writes on the wall, verse five says, the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. I mean, you're dealing in a world here where you don't approach the king without being summoned. Nobody, as a prank, is going to reach their arm through and write on the back of the king's wall. I mean, that's not going to happen. The king is in full panic mode. And everybody's on high alert, remember? The army is outside the Persian army. So he calls in all the Chaldeans, all the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, so the writing is on the wall there, and shows me its interpretation, will be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. And you think if there's writing on the wall, how hard is it to read? And it's 
I don't know, harder than you would think. And we'll talk about that in a second, why that is. But he summons them all in and says, I'll give you all these awards. I'll give you gold. I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom, he says in verse 7. Because remember, he thinks he's a second ruler. So be under me, prime minister, so to speak. Verse 8, all the king's wise men came in. They couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. So King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed again. He was pale before. Now he's translucent. His lords were perplexed, the queen, because of the words of the king and of the lords, came into the banqueting hall. The queen declared, O king, live forever. And this is the queen mother is what the word for this is. She's not Belshazzar's wife. She's maybe perhaps even his mother or mother-in-law. She comes in and says, don't panic. <laughs> Get your color back. Verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom to whom the spirit of the holy gods, in the days of your father, which, again, that doesn't mean biological father, the one who is before you, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father and your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, very similar to Belshazzar's name. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Notice that this queen mother respects Daniel. She's using his Jewish name. And she's saying, everybody knows this. Call him. But the king, Belshazzar, does not respect Daniel. I mean, how could he when he's drinking with implements from Yahweh's temple? Daniel's brought in before the king, verse 13. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel. I mean, just notice the derogatory tone in his voice. You're that Daniel? <laughs> Would have thought you'd been taller. <laughs> You're that Daniel of whom I've heard that you have the spirit from my father. Notice this language, verse 13, that my father brought from Judah. In other words, you're the captive. You're nothing but a, you're nothing but a prisoner. I've heard of you. Notice that he doesn't believe it. I've just heard the spirit of the gods is in you. And again, every chance he's taken to take a, a shot at the true God, Yahweh, he's, he's taking advantage of. Every opportunity to put Daniel in his place is doing. Well, I've heard that you have a spirit of some of the gods. <laughs> and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Again, he's saying, I heard this, not that he believes it. Now the wise men, the enchanters, had brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. They could not show the interpretation or the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Again, notice I've heard. <laughs> now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. This is designed to intimidate Daniel. Look how big and strong I am. Look how weak you are, how your God I'm drinking wine from, from his implements. I mean, you are nothing, Daniel. But if you can do this, you can be a little bit less than me. Daniel, at this point, think of what he's been through. There's been a fiery furnace involved. <laughs> Okay, I mean, Daniel's not, he's not afraid of this. How do you intimidate Daniel? He's at the end of his life. I mean, he's, he's old. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Wow. I don't think Belshazzar has been talked to you like that before. <laughs> let your gifts be for yourself. Give your awards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation, <laughs> but not first without a sermon. <laughs> O king, the most high God, not, not gods, take that back. The most high God, he says, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Now those are fighting words. He's telling Belshazzar, how did your, your father become king? My God made him king. 
This is Jesus telling Pilate, hey, you have no power unless my God gives it to you, okay? So don't threaten me with crucifixion. Who do you think gets your power? Because of the greatness, verse 19, that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. At the end of the night, we'll read Nebuchadnezzar's own words about his conversion. But what Daniel's doing here, he's taking Nebuchadnezzar's description of God and applying it back to Nebuchadnezzar, demonstrating God has all power and gave some of it to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20, when his heart was lifted up, Nebuchadnezzar, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. Lycanthropy is the, the word. He went out and grazed with the cow. He thought it was a cow. And his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind, sets over it whom he will. I mean, look what he's doing to this king. You paraded me in here to read something for you while making fun of my God? Let me tell you about where your power comes from. At least your dad knew who the true God was. In verse 22, and you, his son, and again, I don't think it's the word for son here. I think it's successor is the, the better word. If you have the SV, that's what it's footnoted there. Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Don't play this whole, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard. You know this, Daniel's saying. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, the vessels of his house. You brought him in before you, you and your lords, your wives and your concubines. You've drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, by the way, or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Notice the contrast. You're worshiping the gods of gold, silver, and stone. They don't exist. Find a rock. It doesn't have eyes and it doesn't give you power. What a contrast. You're getting drunk out of wine from the true God of heaven, from what belongs to him. Then from his presence, the sand was sent, Daniel says, verse 24. This writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom brought to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed and the balance is found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. We'll get back to that paragraph in a second. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Very next verse, that night Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. So his reign as the prime minister lasted approximately 15 minutes. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being 62 years old. The Persians won. Now, you know from history, the Persians did this by, they had dammed the Euphrates. They had built a blockade that blocked the water and the Babylonians did not anticipate this. They didn't see this coming. They blocked the river and, and they did it instantly. They had a way to, they obviously built this contraption to put down into the river and block the water at once. They couldn't last forever because the water would build up. So they blocked the water. The river turns to mud. They could then infiltrate the city through the, city, the series of canals and tunnels that brought the water into Babylon. These are unguarded. There's no army there. The whole thing was over in a moment. And this had to have already been happening while the handwriting was on the wall. That's where we get the expression, the writing is on the wall. I mean, this, <laughs> your fate has been sealed. It's already done. And you're boasting. 
Now back to the key paragraph here. I'm going to give you an outline, take notes on. That all was introduction for this point. <laughs> Three obvious truths that the blind can't see. I mean, what? It's a comical scene here. There's words written on the wall. All of the wise men can't read them. Okay? And it's not because they're you know, written in some kind of you know, invisible ink that you have to have the right decoder glasses on to read. There's three words written on the wall and they cannot read them. They're blinded by their own sin. They don't have the spiritual insight to know what these words are. What a picture of depravity, that in your own drunkenness, your own love for, for sin, you can't see God's clear revelation, God's giving revelation. He's literally writing it on the wall <laughs> and they cannot perceive it because their hearts are darkened. Now, like Hebrew, Aramaic can be written without vowels. These words have three consonants. And if you're familiar at all with, with Hebrew, you know this, you can, you know, even street signs or Hebrew newspapers today don't have the vowels, vowels in Hebrew, you know, subscript. So you can write Hebrew without the vowels. And it's actually not that hard. You can write English without the vowels too. The key to understanding that is context. If you know what the sentence is saying, you've got some context around you, you can figure out what the word should be. Well, three words written on the wall, you could say it's lacking context. <laughs> And so that's why it becomes difficult. We know what the words are. Now here's, this might be boring for some of you, but if some of you have taken a Hebrew class or two. You might be interested in this and that's why I'm sharing it with you. The words change meaning depending on what vowels you give them. And so there's three different ways these three words could be pronounced, which means there's three different ways they could be interpreted. Let me give you all three. The obvious way you would read these on the wall is about money. Mina, shekel, and a half or mina, mina, shekel, and a half. So mina, unit of money. Shekel, a half unit of that. Shekel's smaller. If you like a ton, 100 pounds, and half of that. Ton, 100 pounds, and a dollar, that kind of thing. It's units of money. Mina, mina, shekel, and half. You could see why the king would be confused. What does that mean? But if you put different vowel markings on them, it becomes these three words. Appointed, weighed, and judged. Appointed, weighed, and judged. Also not very helpful for the king. The third way you can mark these, they become puns and they become funny. They become God making fun of the king. You could render them this way. He pays, you're too light, and Persia. See why that's funny? Who did they lose to? Persia. So God pays, you're too light, Persia. You could probably make a song out of it. Babylonian worship song. I don't know. <laughs> Let's look at these three words one at a time. That'll be our outline. Three truths that are contained in each of them. First, many, or mina, depending on how you pronounce it. But let's go with the, the meaning that appointed, because that's what Daniel, that's how Daniel renders it. Appointed or numbered is what the ESV does. This interpretation of the matter, verse 26, many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. The point of this word is that God alone is sovereign. God alone is sovereign. And there's Hebrew use of this word, which is why these are all puns in both Aramaic and Hebrew, by the way, which is, I mean, it really is God using the languages of the world for this scene to make fun of Babel in a series of puns as it goes. Babel, founded on confusion of languages, ends on confusion of languages. I mean, God has a sense of humor. This is the hashtag irony today. 
This word in Hebrew means appointed. It's like it does in Aramaic. It's the word that Adam and Eve use when they fall pregnant with Seth. They say, and Seth is born, and they declare that God has appointed a son for us. God has declared we would have a new son. This is the word that Yahweh uses, talking to Sarah. And God says, this time next year, I will return, and at the appointed time, you will have a son. And Sarah, remember what she did? Laughed. And God says, why do you laugh? Do you not believe that I can appoint these things? That's Genesis 18, verse 14. The point here is that Yahweh is the one who is sovereign. He alone controls the world. Now, of course, this has already been proclaimed by Daniel. Daniel 4, verse 25. Daniel rebukes King Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel had his showdown with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, 25 says, you'll be driven from among men. You'll go out in the woods like an animal, he says, until you learn that the man, that the God on high, the most high God, he rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whoever he wants to. That was Nebuchadnezzar's lesson, that God can make whoever he wants to be a king. From this, you deduce that every political ruler, every king, every president, every despot, every dictator, his greatest ally is God because he has his authority from God. At the same time, his greatest fear is also God because God could take it from him in a moment. In fact, just jog with your eyes. These are Nebuchadnezzar's parting words. Look at chapter four, the end of chapter four of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar writes a hymn at the end of his life. Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful Babylonian king, he gets converted and he writes this, verse 35. The most high should be praised and honored who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hands or say to him, what have you done? You want a great verse in the sovereignty of God? It's written by a Babylonian emperor who had his eyes open to the truth. A picture of total depravity that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't believe when he was out like an ox. A picture of total depravity that Belshazzar couldn't read the writing on the wall. A picture of God's unconditional election that he chooses to reveal this to Nebuchadnezzar. A picture of God's irresistible grace that Nebuchadnezzar has his eyes opened. And then writes this. I challenge you to find a better little hymn about God's sovereignty anywhere in the Bible. Psalm 93 is probably the closest psalm equivalent to this. You have Psalm 93 and Nebuchadnezzar's words. No one can stay his hands. Who exactly do you think you are, Belshazzar? That's what many means written on the wall. That God is sovereign. Second word, tekel, which means judged or weighed. The word for weighed, it, you know, we picture a scale like you get on in the morning and you get angry at the scale. You know, this thing is so old, like three weeks old, it's not even working anymore. <laughs> Must be dust. Tackle here, when they use weighed, they don't mean weighed like that. They mean weighed like revealed the truth of it. You want to, you want to, you know, we think, here's an example I think of when I think of this analogy. I have two different kinds of wood stacked in my firewood pile. I have some poplar wood and some oak wood, the poplar to get the fire going. And if it's late at night, the light is dark, I go out there and I can feel which one is which. It's weighed. And if I feel, oh, this is too light, I'm not bringing that in now. The fires are going, I'm leaving that. That's this kind of word. You weigh it to figure out how, how good it is, how solid it is. Now listen, when it comes to God, this is exactly what every non-believer hopes for, isn't it? 
This is what they say, that God will judge me. I'm gonna be okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be okay when I die because God, if he or she exists, <laughs> will examine my life and he'll find, he'll see that I'm pretty much a good person. As long as God judges me based upon my motives and my intent, I'll be okay. That's the typical non-believer thinking. They want to be judged by God because they think they do what is right. This is particularly true about kings, isn't it? Kings generally, or to use the American equivalent, presidents generally try to do a good job. They try to do what is best. So they have this idea, kings do, especially Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, that if there is a God that will judge them, they will pass the judgment because they have a righteousness in and of themselves. They try to do what is good. They want the judgment. This is the point of Babel. If God sends judgment, that's okay. We're high enough. People view their righteousness that way. I've done enough good in my life that I have climbed up above the ways of judgment. Now, not everybody. Some people are broken by their sin. Some people know they're wicked and they're evil and they're in need of a savior. But often there are those who think that, listen, I'm okay. If God's a judge, I'm okay because I know I do pretty much a good job. Like I'm definitely not bad enough to deserve hell and God would know that. And that is a profound demonstration of spiritual blindness that you would think that about yourself a person who thinks that they're basically okay and can survive a judgment from God is naive that kind of arrogance you think your righteousness builds you a tower to heaven that's signing your own death warrant to believe that every sin will be punished by God every drop of martyr's blood shed will be avenged every slight against Yahweh the ones you see in Daniel 5 will be recompensed Psalm 110, verse five, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings of the earth in the day of his wrath. This is true in Israel also. Exodus 6, verse six, therefore say to the people of Israel, I'm Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with great acts of judgment against the people. Even in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 4, verse eight, God is the righteous judge. God alone is judge. You can't pass a judgment on your own. You can't even render a right judgment on your own. A person who says that they're good enough to pass God's judgment is like Belshazzar, unable to read the writing on the wall. Thinking the problem can't be with my eyes. I just need a better magician. God alone is judged, thirdly. Perez, God alone is good. Parson is the word, as I mentioned uh, there's different ways to pronounce it, different way, vowel pointings. Daniel makes the pun obvious if you look in verse 25. Parson is the word he's, is written on the wall in verse 25. In verse 28, Daniel makes it the, the plural here. Perez, your kingdom is divided. He, make, he makes it obvious that he's talking about the, the verb and he renders it in perez here because that's the Hebrew word for division or for breach. So he's making it, and now it's a pun in both languages. Do you catch this? It's a pun in Aramaic. Persia, <laughs> you're weighed. You're not gonna pass your judgment. You know, and God will judge you and divide you. God will condemn you. And then also in Aramaic, Persia, <laughs> you're gonna lose. God is gonna cast you to hell and judge your soul and the Persians will take your kingdom. It's a double pun. Daniel makes that clear by giving it in a different sense in verse 28. Perez, your kingdom's divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The word prez in Hebrew is to breach or make a divide. Think of uh, Judah, his child with his, his daughter-in-law. Do you remember this? Judah's son died and he told his other sons to, 
to give her an heir and they refused. And so Judah ended up sleeping with her as a, a prostitute and she got pregnant and Judah wanted her killed and she, because he didn't know what was happening and she revealed that no, it was actually you, Judah, my father-in-law is the father of my, my child. And they, she gave birth to twins. Do you remember the, the scene and the oldest twin stuck his arm out and came back in and they named him Perez, that he was breached. That becomes such a picture of the immorality of Israel. And that's this word here that's dropped here, breach. God will judge you. He will make a divide between the righteous and the unrighteous. He will make a divide between his holiness and your so-called goodness. That kind of immorality and that kind of hypocrisy, that is the picture of Belshazzar. That is the picture of this arrogance. And God judges it. There's no one who's holy like God is. You think that you will stand before God for judgment? You can't pass his judgment particularly Babylon. Psalm 136 says this, O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you've repaid us. Jeremiah 27 verse 29. Jeremiah says, summon an army against Babylon. Destroy them. Let there be no escape. Repay her according to her work. The Old Testament celebrates those who destroyed Babylon because of their immorality. God will breach their wall. It might be the Persians who get into the river, but God will breach the wall. And this is the judgment on the nation. Now apply this to the individual people. Persia destroys Babylon, but it is God who destroys Belshazzar. Anybody can go through these same three words. God appoints himself as sovereign over the world and he gives you your life. God will then judge your life. At the end of your life, God will judge you and make a divide. The New Testament refers to this as the sheep and the goats. God will divide everybody into two categories. Those who are going to eternal life and those who are going to hell. Those are the division. That's the divide God makes. It's the breach. That's the word that Daniel's using here. That's the divide. Now notice that you're weighed, you're judged. Now the division here is not between the good and the bad because if the world was divided between the good people and the bad people, there would only be one camp. That's not a division. <laughs> when I go out to get firewood, I got the two kinds of wood. I'm not gonna accidentally pick up a block of gold. <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> when God divides the world between the good and the bad, there will be nobody in the good category. So that's not the division. The division, everybody is judged, everybody is weighed and found wanting is the expression we get from this chapter, weighed and found wanting. We're all measured by God, we all fail. The divide is between those who see their own sin and turn to Christ for salvation and those who refuse to. That's the divide. That's why Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, although they're both emperors of Babylon, are on opposite sides of the divide. Nebuchadnezzar calls out to God and puts his faith in the savior that God was gonna send to Israel. Belshazzar refuses to do that. And Jesus says, I have so much to say to you. I have many ways to judge you. But the one who sent me is true. That's John 8, verse 26. Let's leave Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar behind. Turn into the New Testament to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, for this encounter. This becomes, in many ways, the New Testament equivalent of this exchange of the three words in the wall applied. Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And this good this rich young ruler is more advanced even than 
Belshazzar, he's at least looking to Jesus for help. Jesus said to him, verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you'd enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Notice that the, who's known as the rich young ruler here, Mark and Luke fill out his identity. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Comes to Jesus and says, I want eternal life. He calls Jesus good. Jesus does not accept the premise of his question. He's tossing the word good around as if it's inconsequential. But notice that when he's doing that, that allows him to call himself good. He's using it as a term of respect. Oh, Jesus, you're good. I'm good. We're all good. You might be better than me, so help me out here. And Jesus says, you can't call me good like that. You and I have different categories of goodness. <laughs> no one is good, Jesus says. Not even one to pick up the New Testament. Nobody is good here. Or Romans, Paul says that no one is good, not even one. Here, Jesus says, why do you ask me what's good? There's only one who is good. Instead, if you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. In other words, pass the judgment. You want eternal life? Don't sin. Ever. Future and past. Ready, go. <laughs> no, you'll be weighed and you'll be found wanting. You'll be in the category of Belshazzar. Weighed and found wanting. The rich young ruler of verse 18 says, which ones? Which is, I mean, what a question, huh? Jesus says, you want eternal life? Keep all the commandments. And he says, okay, which ones? Tell me where to start. I mean, you got to appreciate his eagerness, don't you? Like, I'll go do it right now. He's not getting the point. He missed the point of nobody is good except God. If you stay on that point, you don't need the rest of the sentence. Nobody is good except God, okay? I can't go keep the commandments. I'm not good. Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor yourself. Second half of the Ten Commandments, basically. The young man said, I've done all that. I mean, this is just incredible, isn't it? Imagine looking at Jesus, the judge of the universe, and saying, check, 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 check. I'm good, right? Young man said to him, all these have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you'd be perfect. Notice the standard here. You must be perfect. Go and sell your goods, give to the poor. Follow me. The young man heard this, went away sad. He had many possessions. Jesus said, with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's the point. Verse 25, and the disciples say, who can be saved? Jesus says, with man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Many, many, Teckelson, Parkson. God is the one who's sovereign over salvation. God can give eternal life and it only comes through Jesus Christ. He will judge every person and every person will fail. But he offers salvation to those who turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us clear revelation. It's sad that there will be those who read your exchange with the rich young ruler and won't understand it, they won't believe it. They, it reads to them like writing on the wall. But I pray for people who are here tonight that recognize that they would fail the judgment that you have. They see their own sin. They see their need for salvation. I pray they would turn their eyes to you. They would do what Belshazzar did not, but that Nebuchadnezzar did. They would look to you. They would believe that you are the son of God and you are God who came to earth that you led a sinless life and then you died on the cross for our sins. Belshazzar becomes a picture of an evil leader boasting and arrogant at his own demise. You become the picture of the perfect king, holy and humble and a substitute 
Belshazzar sent others to die for him. You came to die for us. We put our faith in your death for our sins. We put our faith in your resurrection. We know that you rose from the grave and so we will rise with you as well. We give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.